Hello, and welcome to Inequality Talks, a podcast from the volunteers of the Economic Inequality Group at Mellonfolkli Sandvega Aarhus. On Inequality Talks, we take each episode a concept related to economics and economic inequality and explore that concept to see how it might help or hinder. I'm Adam. With me today are... Elise. Virginia. Sebastian. Today, we're going to be talking about a wealth tax. And in the simplest terms, the idea of a wealth tax is that we tax what people own as well as, as their income. Um, but it's, it's very complicated, and we'll get to that later. The reason we're, we're talking about a wealth tax is because it, it's tied to the, the core idea of this group, economic inequality, and that economic inequality is increasing. Let's talk a bit about like where everyone started off. Before we started researching... What was your knowledge or view on a wealth tax? I think for me, the question is always a question of uh, balance of power and democracy. In the sense that if we look at the economic power that some people have compared to the economic power that majority of the population has, then we cannot really see a very strong democratic or equal balance of power. Like if you take Denmark, for instance, it's actually funny to look at... uh, the Danish people that think that they have such an equalitarian culture. And of course, in the term of income, there's not so much difference. But if you look at wealth, 10% of the richest own 50% of the country in 2012. And the 50% of the poorest own less than 10%. Or can we talk about democracy when economic power is so unequally distributed? Okay. And Virginia, what's your take on, on when you started researching this? Um, I can tell that before um, I started this research, my knowledge about wealth tax or wealth inequalities was uh, very, very shallow. And I didn't have um, so much idea of what is the difference between uh, taxing wealth or taxing income or what is the difference between wealth and income inequality because I was always associating these uh, two concepts, even though in many countries, income and wealth inequalities are actually very different. And um, while now I have uh, researched a bit more, so I I got to know more the, of the different problematics of different types of uh, inequalities. And uh, that's also why I think it's important to talk about it, because so far, the economic debate has been very much focused on always on income inequality, while wealth has often been neglected, while it is a truth that wealth is even more concentrated than income, and wealth uh, tends to produce income itself. So it can be more dangerous effect than uh, income inequality. So starting from... Uh, my very shallow uh, knowledge uh, that I had myself, I think it's very important to start talking about wealth uh, as well. Thank you. Annalise? Um, yeah, so I've always been for taxing wealth and taxing income because this insane inequality of economic power, to use your word, Sebastian, I find absolutely despicable. So, you know, without really knowing so much about it, I was like, yeah, yeah, wealth tax, wealth tax. Um, I'm still like, yeah, wealth tax, wealth tax. But um, now I know a little bit more of the technicalities of how difficult it actually can be to implement. And um, yeah, how complex it really is um, to tax wealth. Cool. And, and like you, Elise, um, and like you, Sebastian, and like you, Virginia, I like I was familiar with the idea of a wealth tax vaguely, especially through the proposals that have that have come from politicians recently in the US in the 2020 election. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders were talking about wealth tax, but the technicalities weren't so much there. I, I am more broadly interested in yeah, economic power, how economic power relates to political power, how they're not really distinct. And when you're talking about wealth, then you're talking about a much broader field. And wealth tax is a method or one idea of a method to, to do some something about that. Um, we'll dig into how and what exactly its effects are and critiques there might be of it at a, at a later point. Um, so, Elise, would you like to talk a bit more about what a wealth tax is? You know, you've done a bit of research into this and the different types you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would like to talk about it. 
First, maybe it's helpful to talk about what wealth is because there's often this confusion or like a conflation between wealth tax and income tax, but they're very different. Wealth is a stock variable while income is a flow variable. And if you think about it like a bathtub, you turn on the faucet and there's a stream of water that is, that's a flow variable. So that would be your income. You can adjust the faucet to make the stream go faster or slower. So your income can change uh, from year to year, probably will. Um, but what is in the bathtub, that's the stock variable. So that's your wealth at the end. And obviously wealth isn't just your income. Income relates to wealth in that it adds to your wealth. But there are way more things that you would consider someone's wealth. So mm. could I just, with regards to that analogy of a, of a stock variable, mm -hmm. the water in the bathtub doesn't change. But isn't it true, like Virginia said, to say that wealth itself produces more wealth, more income? So how does that relate to the analogy of the bathtub? <laughs> Maybe like a bathtub that recycles the water. And it like exponentially <laughs> increases the water as it gets recycled. Okay. Yeah. Um, and also, um, usually when we're talking about a wealth tax, we're talking about net wealth, uh, which means that it's your assets minus your liabilities or your wealth minus your debts. And your assets or your wealth can be anywhere from cash or the money you have in your bank um, to the amount of shares you have. Um, it could also be fixed assets um, that aren't so easily converted into cash. That's what a fixed asset is. Um, so like property or um, equipment in a company, for example. Um, also your cars, real property. So that's land and buildings, um, pension plans. But in some cases, pension plans will be left out of um, the calculation. Um, it can also be money funds, owner-occupied housing, which means that a person living in the house that they own, and also trusts. So I know that was a lot. And the reason why I mention all of these different types of assets is because later on in the conversation, I'm sure we'll get to this, there are some problems related to how is your wealth actually valued. Typically, it's a taxing authority that will um, assess the value of a person's assets and liabilities, but that can be really difficult. Um, and a taxing authority might apply um, different kind of tax rates according to the different levels of wealth. So if it's progressive or regressive or a flat tax. And typically when we talk about a wealth tax, it's an annual tax. But as I'm sure we'll see later on, there are other types. I think Elizabeth Warren's was an annual tax yes. on um, yeah. the net wealth, right? I think frequently and generally the proposals are for an annual tax mm. that will give a steady income, kind of like you would do an income tax. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there are different variants and they have existed and, and that people propose. It's, it's also interesting, and I think a key thing to highlight, we're talking about billionaires, multi-billionaires, and at least in my head, often the idea is like they have all that money, but it's often invested in things and is creating more money. So it's not this static wealth it's wealth that generates itself and we like all to a certain degree have something that would qualify as wealth or assets um but we're not talking about like having just a car and a house or something or a toothbrush or whatever that would be we're talking about people who have huge amounts of things and financial stocks and really complicated things as well yeah and the question of democracy it really comes when we talk about this capacity to invest because if you take the 25 richest people in denmark the total wealth is around 478 billion And that corresponds to more than the state's total budget, which is 459 billion kroner. Which means that 25 people in Denmark have more power to invest and to decide over the economy than the state. And that's, that's, that's uh, like the question about democracy. That's where it comes. I'd also like to point out this, like the, the idea of a wealth tax, we're talking about these new proposals, we're talking about in a current context, but it's not new. Like wealth taxes have existed for a long time. There's a lot of countries that still have wealth taxes. Uh, Denmark had a wealth tax until 1997. Sweden and Austria also lost theirs around the same time. There was the fall of the Soviet Union. There was this backlash. There was the idea of tax competition, which we see again all the time. 
things people lower their tax rates or in this case drop entire tax categories to invite uh, more rich people eventually the idea is that they'll invest in the country some still remain norway still has a wealth tax i think france still has a wealth tax although it's slowly being being degraded uh, really interestingly this is one thing that i found in my research um, and this is another type which going to talk we're talking about annual ones here but they have been very successful one-off wealth taxes and in the post-world war ii period which a lot of people nowadays a lot of also conservative people who would be against wealth tax um they they lord this period this great reconstruction everything a lot of that was funded by a one-off wealth tax that obviously on, on the majority of people they paid nothing, but large fortunes could pay up to 50% of their fortune. And there's this one-off wealth tax that funded a huge amount that helped solve all of the debt of the war or a large proportion of the debt of the war. Obviously, one-offs, it doesn't solve everything because we've got to the situation we've got to now. But um, the issue is with a lot of the historical wealth taxes that exist um, or that have existed is that a lot of them didn't really change since the 18th and 19th centuries when they when they were founded, which was in a very different, different historical context. And there have been battles over them since, but often they were they were only effectively on real property, mm-hmm. um, which is which is effectively land and buildings and and that kind of stuff. Which in that period also was a larger proportion of property, and in this period we now have all kinds of financial constructions and all kinds of that that also count towards wealth, um, but also that it doesn't apply to things like yachts and cars and things that are really luxury and excess. Bizarrely, are left out of this. Also, these taxes tended to be flat, so it was the same rate. It wasn't on net wealth, uh, like you mentioned, Elise. So it would be the same for someone who had one house and a mortgage on it, would pay the same amount as someone who had 100 buildings um, and a bunch of wealth in their bank account. They'd all pay like 2% or whatever it was on on each building, which is actually beneficial to the very wealthy. It has much less of an impact on their overall wealth than it does on, on an individual. The rates were very low. And there was much debate about getting it from real property to other kinds of uh, property, in the, even in the US, um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but it got left out. And also, they weren't assessed annually. They were built in a period where you didn't have massive inflation, where you had gold standard, where you could... So they often assessed wealth once every 10 years, and the tax rates were based on that, which, of course, doesn't work in this era but those, those were some some historical examples. Um, but let's talk about, yeah, let's, let's dig a bit more. You mentioned about economic power. I know you've done some research on this. Let's talk about why it's important now to talk about wealth tax or wealth inequality. Let's, let's dig a little yeah, deeper. I, I think like you talk about the end of the Second World War. Yes. And uh, today we are also in a very big crisis, which is a COVID crisis. And that has like a lot of economic impacts. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of states went into debt to save the economy. And I can see already in some newspaper in France or in Belgium that politicians are talking about we're going to have to pay for that debt and what it will imply in terms of austerity. And that's where we need to talk about the wealth tax because actually that debt really saved the rich people. Because, of course, like a, a, a state like the Danish state created health packages that didn't always reach the most precarious people, but like a lot of people got help. But they got help in the form of money so that they could continue to pay their rent, to pay their credit, to keep buying stuff online while a lot of small shops were closed. So who benefited from that? It was like the landowners, it was the banks that were saved, and it was like the big multinationals like Amazon that made a huge profit. And so that's why we need to talk about the wealth tax today. Because... This COVID crisis, like the economic taxes, it really showed that one, ma- making the inequality increasing. So I think it is uh, like we have some numbers uh, in, in Denmark. Uh, in the last year, the 100 richest families increased their fortune by 100 billion kroner during this crisis. Yeah. So when they got richer. When people were struggling to make ends meet and while, find jobs. Uh, 30,000 people lost their jobs. Wow. So it means that owners benefited from this while workers lost money. And so we need to make sure that we don't accept any austerity measure that would impact social security, that would impact the workers. It must be austerity for the rich, and that's why we need a wealth tax now. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, it, and it, this isn't just in the COVID situation, right? Like we saw this, the, the similar situation in 2008. It's part of a broader trend. Virginia, would you like to talk about what you've... Yes. Uh, another point, uh, in order to understand understand the development of wealth inequalities in the last decades is 
to consider how the national wealth developed uh, as well. Because we know that the share of uh, public wealth in total national wealth has uh, uh, declined significantly in most of, of the rich countries uh, since uh, uh, the 80s. So we had that uh, private wealth increased uh, a lot while the governments have become always more poor or their wealth has even got below zero because they are indebted. The main causes uh, for um, the rise of uh, private wealth uh, were rising property prices, aging of population or its decline in growth, but also privatization of public assets. So we have that in the in most European countries or Japan or US, public wealth as a percentage of uh, national income fell from around 20% to zero or uh, even negative uh, values. Uh, Yes. Yeah, while at the same time, private wealth as a percentage of national income increased from on average 200-300% to 600% or or even more in other extreme cases. Yeah, Yeah. and it's very important to say also when we talk about private wealth, it's it's not so much um, that a lot of people got their life better, but it's a very small amount, a very small percentage of the population that actually owns shares mm-hmm. uh, in companies. And it's them that really benefited from that. So it's like a, a small share of the population that got their wealth dr- drastically increasing. And this just goes back to the, the first point that you made, Sebastian, about democracy of economic power and who is making the decisions in society. That, yeah, that, that's it. And th- that's what we need to tell now. Uh, because we could see in 2008 that uh, the big banks and the multinational companies, they came crying to the state of the economic crisis to save them. Mm-hmm. And the state had to go into debt and make austerity for the workers and for the population in order to save the big banks and the owners. Yeah, because we paid it in the end. Yeah, exactly. And this time again, who saved the economy? It was the state by going into debt. Mm-hmm. And so this time we need to say, okay, but you, you cannot manage an economy. So you need to put it back into the democratic control. Yeah. Also because in order to decrease the existing inequalities or to prevent other increases, investments are necessary for education, healthcare or environmental protection. But uh, with the governments that are now are very poor or in debt, mm-hmm. uh, this is not possible anymore. So mm-hmm. that's why this uh, development of private versus public wealth has a very big impact on wealth and income inequalities. Yeah, and because here we're talking about the COVID crisis, but we have another crisis that we can talk about, mm-hmm. which is the ecological crisis, mm-hmm. in w- for which we will need like massive investment to have like a proper transition. And it doesn't seem, or it doesn't seem in the last 30 years, that the private economic sector is willing to, to make this investment. So we need to give money back to the democratic control, as you said, in order to be able to do it. And also to say that actually the lifestyle that is the most detrimental to the planet is the lifestyle of the rich people. And it's interesting because privatization has often, almost always been justified under the neoliberal fame framework, which has been dominant since the 1980s, which is the period in which we've seen this massive spike in growing inequality. It's always been justified on the grounds that it's more efficient, that it'll, it's the best way to produce these outcomes. And we've seen it hasn't produced these beneficial outcomes. We have, we've seen that the profit motive doesn't work in a lot of a lot of scenarios and you can also see that by looking at the global trends of wealth increasing dramatically while income is um, either slowing or uh, completely um, unchanging yeah uh, and, and you can also look at the when you talk about the ecological crisis about the fact that half of the co2 emission come from after the 90s and that the companies knew about it in the 60s when there was research but have covered it up. So clearly the profit motive isn't working in that scenario. And even on the smaller scale, like things you mentioned, Virginia, like the the privatization of public things. So in the UK, there's a big instance of the train system was privatized because everyone said the public system was super inefficient. It was really bad. By its own logic, the train system can't really be very com- competitive and the prices have skyrocketed. It's really, like, really expensive to take a train in the UK, which... On the small scale, it's very irritating. It hurts poorer people who can't afford a car, that kind of stuff. But it also 
goes against the supposed aims of health ecological crisis, where we need much more efficient public transport. Um, it, it just doesn't work in that way. Yeah, and that's why today, like when we talk about a wealth tax, that's what we're talking about. We're in this situation now, and what do we do about it? And I'd also like to point out that we're focusing a lot on Western rich countries, but this applies on a global scale as well. We're seeing it increasingly in, in Western countries, but this has been going on for a long time, and especially in the global South, where companies will extract huge amounts of wealth from these countries, generally they're Western-based companies, and the local region, the people who often do the work, will get none of the benefit. There'll be no investment in their local community. So also on a global scale, something needs to change to prevent global inequalities as well as inequalities between countries. So I want to dig a little bit deeper on what exactly tax means, because we're talking about these things here. A common critique of it is like, well, these people have earned their wealth, so why should we take their wealth from them? But I want to point out, A, we, we accept the principle of taxation on income. If you accept that, then a wealth tax also makes sense. If you accept that income should be taxed, the proportion of that belongs to the greater good, then we should accept the wealth tax does, also because a lot of it is luxury. Like, it is the true excess that maybe doesn't exist with income. But also in the broader sense, tax is an example of a demonstration of and a symbol of social wealth, right? That we all benefit from, from working together, from being in a society. There's things we're talking about in the climate context, but also in the day-to-day. -day. We need roads. We need all that kind of stuff. We need education in uh, inf investment in education, in Healthy infrastructure. People. Health uh, infrastructure. And we have, again, seen that privatized methods of doing that don't tend to work very well. But I, I really want to emphasize the point that, that we need to accept that, that no matter how individual stuff seems, wealth is, is built socially. It's built upon us all working together and existing in a network and tax represents the the acceptance of the fact that we we can't e extract ourselves from that i think that's what now we're talking about what can we do and we say mm -hmm. let's tax the rich mm -hmm. but how do we do it is also a technical question and i don't know so much about that but you had some point about like the difficulties to assess wealth and to decide how you were going to tax it can you maybe expand a bit on that well just that it is cumbersome and because it takes, you know, a professional to come and assess the market value of your assets. And also, it's difficult when capital is global and when it can move so quickly, especially with tax havens, makes it super, super difficult, actually. I mean, that's another problem on its own. That We maybe do have a, we have a whole interview that should be up either before this episode or after this episode on an expert, Lars Koch, on tax havens. So Good plug, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and it's also super difficult when you have um, liquid assets and e-liquid assets. Liquid assets are things that can be very easily converted into cash or cash. Um, so like the cash in your wallets or your Visa card. And e-liquid assets are those assets that you can't easily convert into cash right away. So that's things like property, uh, land, you know, or your, your house. And that's another problem in and of itself, because take farmers, for example, they have technically a huge wealth. They have a huge amount of land. They have a lot of equipment, so fixed assets. But the thing is, they couldn't easily convert that into cash if they had to pay. And they have very low income levels. And they have a lot of debt also. Well, It wouldn't be calculated in the if it was net. But yeah, the point is just that, you know, you could have very low income levels, but high amounts of illiquid assets. That just wouldn't be feasible. How would you be able to pay a wealth tax on that? I mean, we could talk about this later when we talk about design, but that's basically the gist of why it's difficult. Mm -hmm. mm, another point is that... Uh, People tend to think that we should not tax wealth because it will be used for investments. And uh, also people argue that uh, the wealthiest people are also the ones that give uh, money to a lot of uh, beneficial projects. Okay, but this uh, is not a democratic uh, concept because we cannot uh, just let few people who happen to be wealthy to decide what mm. is worthy to be financed and what is not worthy. For that, so because they don't have uh, any uh, legal right to decide uh, what, which way the society, uh, which way society should go in. So it's uh, more fair that it's the government elected by people who decides uh, what to finance. Yeah, I was just gonna 
comment on what you're saying with a concrete example and bring it back to the COVID crisis. Because while millions of people lost their jobs and millions of small to medium-sized enterprises went out of business, I saw it myself, like walking around, seeing, you know, really nice cafes and all who's just boom, 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 shutting down. Um, So while all of that was happening, while everyone else was panicking, billionaires' wealth rose $10.2 trillion during the corona crisis. And also I came across this statistic that said that the wealth increased of the 10 richest people, which of course are all men, in the world since March 2020, of half a trillion dollars would have been enough Yeah, half a trillion, I have to (laughs) emphasize, half a trillion um, dollars would have been enough to to, um, pay for a vaccine for everyone. So on that note, also I came across another article that said 209 billionaires donated $7.2 billion from March to June 2020 for uh, pandemic relief. That can't be what we rely on. We can't rely on the ultra-rich to make these decisions about the most important things in life, like literally life and death, we can't be relying on the ultra-rich and their kindness. You know, the the $7.2 billion that were donated, maybe that made a difference for a lot of people, which is really amazing. But when the 10 richest men in the world could have paid for a vaccine for all just from the increase in wealth since the pandemic was in its early days. It's absurd. It's not okay. Any political system that depends on beneficent, powerful people is horribly flawed and prone to incredible abuse. That's like historically what you see in any situation where one person or a very small group of people have massive power over individuals. Because yes, it's great. It would be great if you have the benevolent king but then you can also have the less benevolent king, effectively. And and the like, I, kings is maybe an exaggeration, but ultra-rich people have powers that historical emperors could not have dreamed of the level of reach that they have. And you cannot vote them out. No. Because like, if you don't agree with the politics of a government, you can campaign to vote them out, but like, you cannot vote the rich out. So you cannot hold them accountable. Yeah, and you don't elect rich people based right. on uh, their benevolent yeah. willingness. And there's some research to indicate that, A, uh, I'm with CEOs, there's a high rate of psychopathy, but also the itself being rich has been shown to potentially uh, numb empathy. And just a reminder, we are talking about the ultra-rich. Yes. The ultra-rich who are billionaires. Some of the, like, how, are, how, many, how many are there? Like 2,000-something like, billionaires? Like, there's, uh, like one person in Denmark, the richest person in Denmark, um, their wealth is equivalent to 1.8% of the total GDP of Denmark. So it's the the stat I think you're looking for that I actually wrote down from the recent Oxfam report, which is very good. People should look at it. Um, It's a major source for a lot of my research on this, as well as Piketty's Capital and Ideology. Um, 2,000 billionaires in the world have the wealth of 4.6 billion people, which is 60% of the global population. And that's just 2,000 people. That's the tiniest fraction, and they have a, a huge amount of say. And like you say, I think the key thing is here, no accountability. Yes, it's great if they make nice decisions. No one can hold them to to those decisions. No one can have any say in what they do except themselves, effectively. Yes, theoretically, there are national governments, but they can move between jurisdictions. You have multinational companies. A lot of it's obscured. And generally, being wealthy, you can bribe people. It's a simple fact. Yeah, and in income tax don't affect that. Because as you say, with the, like the uh, metaphor of a bathtub and a faucet, an income tax just like alters the flow in which the wealth comes, but it doesn't change the total wealth. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's why an income tax isn't enough. This is my opinion here. An income tax isn't enough because you're not addressing the core of the problem, which is insane wealth inequality. And and also, like, you have these CEOs who say, oh, I never earn anything. I earn very, very little. But because the way that they use their wealth is they reinvest it in certain ways, so it never is a direct income to their bank account. But their power and their their wealth and as such their power is increasing massively through reinvestment through what they own effectively um, and that yeah income tax doesn't doesn't touch that so we have been talking about why it's important to talk about wealth tax and and how it might be helpful but i know there's also it's complicated and there's some complexities and some limitations and some problems so who'd, who'd like to talk a little bit about that 
Uh, yes, there are several um, limitations or problems, uh, but the main things I, I want to talk about is, for example, tax competition is a problem, especially in Europe. Can you maybe explain what that means, tax competition? Uh, yes, I mean that uh, there are countries in which the taxes are lower or more mm. favorable to a certain category of people. So what then taxpayers will do is only to transfer their wealth uh, to another country. This uh, occur more often in Europe uh, than in the US, for example, because in the US you are taxed based on uh, your citizenship, while in uh, Europe uh, it is different, so you are taxed based on where your wealth is uh, registered. Uh, so this uh, caused a lot of tax evasion back when uh, many European countries had a wealth tax. But uh, we can argue that it's a problem that could be solved if there was political will to avoid tax evasion and more control on transfer of uh, capital and uh, strict, stricter rules or if we took the American example. Or to a pan-European agreement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's, since we have uh, an European Union, uh, it could also make sense to have an European agree agreement on these kind of things in order to avoid tax evasion because of, because of uh, transfer of capital. And there are actually some people that are working on that really, really hard. Uh, I'm thinking, for instance, about the tax justice network. And really, we can go check them out because they are trying to make a lot of work so that we have more transparency. Yeah, and you could also have, like one solution would be to charge exit fees for moving your capital from one country to another. Mm -hmm. And again, if you want to hear more about tax evasion, we do have a great interview with Lars Koch from Mellenfagli Samviga policy director, Lars Koch, and he knows a lot about it and he's he's uh, done an interview with us. But okay, so so tax evasion is clearly a thing. That's It's also a, a problem now with corporate tax and all those other forms of tax and something that needs to be addressed. And, and te uh, wealth tax in and of itself isn't going to solve that, but it's also not necessarily like a reason not to institute a wealth tax. Um, is a, a demonstration of, of basically how the super wealthy can can avoid tax and avoid these things and avoid paying their fair share and democratic accountability and all the important things we've been talking about. What about other other potential limitations or, or difficulties in in instituting wealth tax? And when we're talking about a wealth tax now, we're we're talking primarily about an annual wealth tax. I think so. Something like what Warren uh, Elizabeth Warren in the U.S. or Bernie Sanders proposed, um, which is taxing people every year based on an assessment of their wealth at whatever rate it would be and a pro progressive tax as well but we'll get into that later uh, as we mentioned a bit before a problem that uh, also happened in europe uh, in the last decades when there were still wealth taxes in most countries is that people with mostly or only illiquid assets uh, would not be able to pay the wealth tax uh, but this problem could also be solved most uh, cases uh, by uh, rising the threshold of wealth for which this, the wealth tax starts because uh, the threshold in Europe was quite low uh, before, like 1 million. And, and for example, it was uh, hitting hard on people with uh, big houses or small businesses that were not able to pay. And it wasn't often on net wealth, I think. But for instance, to, like, to illustrate what it would give to a state, uh, for Denmark, for instance, if you would tax the 10 billionaires in dollar found in Denmark, just 1% on their wealth, it would give the Danish treasury 3 billion kroner, like this. And if you would do the same with the 100 to 500 richest families in Denmark, it would provide a minimum of, uh, minimum of 30 billion kroner. And that would be every year. That, that will also mean like just taxing a very few amount of people would give a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, so keeping the minimum uh, wealth threshold for the tax very high would actually still be very effective. And uh, if the threshold is uh, so high, then usually people have not don't have only illiquid uh, assets. They have also uh, liquid wealth. And if, if they have a liquid assets, it's probably something that some um, amount of it can be liquidated so yeah. to speak without like yeah without massively Im impacting them. yeah yeah 
Alice? I just wanted to go back to this point, Sebastian, you make about re-emphasizing that this tax would be on billionaires and multi-millionaires. I come from the U.S., as I've mentioned several times in earlier podcasts, and um, something that drives me really crazy and that I just really don't understand is why a lot of conservatives, especially economic conservatives in the U.S., have this notion that the, t the tax is very personal. So, like, you know, the government is always trying to come for your money. And so, for example, when we had a, um inheritance tax, I think it was the Bush administration that changed the name to be the death tax and kind of instilled this idea in the public that oh my gosh, the government even taxes me after I die. I'm mm -hmm. never going to catch a break from this darn yeah. government. And and so it's really important to emphasize that we have already many times today that the wealth taxes for billionaires and multi-billionaires, you know, maybe we should start talking about a billionaire tax and using yeah. those words because, you know, public perception plays such a key role in in the process of implementing or like uh, in the process of putting this kind of tax on the political agenda. The narrative really matters as we have talked about many times, like with GDP, for example. Yeah, and uh, I think that's something that, for instance, the Workers' Party in Belgium is doing, talking about the, the millionaire's tax, and it's really, really effective. And we need also to emphasize that here we're talking about a one-person tax, so it's not even that radical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's not actually going to have a, a huge impact on those people. But okay, so that's another another potential difficulty is how you position this, especially in countries that are that are particularly adverse um, to, to tax. More in general, okay, I talked about tax competition, but more in general, we can talk about behavior uh, changes caused by the wealth tax because usually when we try to calculate the benefits or the revenue rose uh, by. Um, wealth tax, we consider the static effects on that, okay, based on the data that we have now. But probably the wealthiest would change their behavior, would change their sources of income, okay, if if uh, high enough wealth tax was uh, imposed on them. So this is a strong argument, because if the wealthiest just uh, stop saving and they just spend their wealth or they find a way to reduce their tax liability uh, before the wealth tax, then there would be no uh, no much uh, revenue, no much reason to impose it. What what kind of behaviors do you think would change, like long-term behaviors um, of corporations would change, you think? It could be that they, they just save less, but still they have a high income, but, but they save less. Mm. Or it might be that they find a way to evade taxes or to transfer taxes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Or the idea that a lower investment, which as we've covered, like thinking the state will be able to invest it. But yeah. That if you have an annual wealth tax over time, they will probably find ways and loopholes to go around it. That's what happens with corporate taxes. Yeah. So a lot of those loopholes are kind of there on purpose, like in corporate taxes and those kind of subsidies. And that's a matter of political will and, and instituting it in and the lobbyism. correct way. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, again, would be greatly addressed if we had some... Because lobbyism is because they have so much money, effectively, yeah. to, to influence the political process. So again, it's another of those impacts that we talked about earlier with wealth. I think that when we talk about that, then we can really talk about how we design a wealth tag that would be yeah. effective. So I've, I've, got, I've got some notes on that based on our discussion. And I stop me if I've missed anything... Obviously, there would need to be some broader tax reform in terms of how we avoid people moving their wealth. I, I feel like this is slightly more possible in the context of that now Joe Biden, who's recently been elected in the US, for anyone who is listening to this in the future, um, is working on a, a, a hopefully a minimum global tax rate, which is interesting to see that political will can exist. The key obstacle seems to be political will. And again, political will that, that hopefully if a wealth tax was instituted, it would hopefully prevent in future the sort of uh, hostage-taking of countries by going, oh, well, if you raise taxes, we'll withdraw our wealth. Because if you've redistributed the wealth, that's much, much less likely to happen. 
Um, I think also it, there's the the question it would need a system to assess wealth, which can be can be complex. Um, it would also have to apply to all wealth, like because as soon as you have categories of wealth that are excluded, the wealthy will will pour their wealth into that so they can evade tax. There's the threshold that we've talked about. It has to be sufficiently high to, to not hurt people and to be sort of politically acceptable. Um, but again, I think there's proposals like Elizabeth Warren's proposal recently. It would only have affected 20,000 households in the US, which is a tiny, tiny fraction. That's like a town. Yeah, um, a, a hugely wealthy town. And it would give, uh, I think the plan was over three years, it would give $3.75 trillion or something. It was, maybe it was 10 years, I can't quite remember. Um, there's also that it's progressive in the sense that the higher your net wealth, and net wealth is key because you, if someone has a mortgage in a house and they're taxed on the house based on the value of the house without their debts removed, then they're going to lose massively. But also that it's progressive. So the greater your wealth, the greater the tax rate up to a certain threshold. Um, because again, flat, ta- flat taxes tend to, to to hurt the poorest people and not have a huge effect on the, on the richest people. Um, it would need to be a high enough tax rate that it would have a, a measurable revenue stream. But as Sebastian has said, a 1% tax rate would bring in a huge revenue on its own. There's questions about what you want the aim of the of the wealth tax to be, um, but, but there's that. Um, and... I think that's uh, that's 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 more or less it. And and that would not even be a new thing in Denmark mm-hmm. because Denmark used to have a pretty mm-hmm. uh, important wealth tax uh, in the eighties. Uh, I think it was two point two percent, and then it was changed in eighty nine to one percent before being abolished in ninety seven. So it's not a new thing; it's just reinstating it. For, for me, it's really a question like, okay, we have a COVID crisis, we're going to need to pay because the, te- the state got into debt. And that's also why maybe like a one-off wealth tax would make sense in this situation. Like, how do we say, okay, we have this debt, how would we pay it? We take this money from who has it? Also because uh, with the one-off tax, uh, then we could avoid the problem of behavioral change and economical distortion that I talked about uh, before, because it, it will be only for one time, so the wealthiest will not uh, uh, decrease their tax liability the year after. Mm. Yeah, good point. And probably would be easier to assess a one-off rather than... Yeah, yeah. And maybe more, more um, politically accepted by the public too, if it's just, you know, a one-off. One mm-hmm. But but I guess this, this leads us sort of the question of what, what, it depends what you want to achieve with a wealth tax. And as with all these things we've talked about, it seems like it's one policy, but depending on a lot of variables, you know, it, it's a lot of different policies. So a one-off wealth tax might help with the with the COVID situation or might pay for a vaccine. Um, but, but it depends on what you want to achieve. So so what is what is the aim here? I mean, a one-off wealth tax doesn't change the structure mm-hmm. uh, at all. So it totally solves uh, a temporary problem. So a one-off wealth tax then needs to be completed with uh, reforms on income taxes or an annual wealth tax, of course. Yeah, and I, and I think that's that's also a message like we, we can say today. We can say, okay, all this this money that we we need to pay need to take from the people who benefited of the crisis and not the people who like lost from it. Like, so it needs to, to come from the owners and not from the workers. But then we also need to think about in the future what would austerity for the rich mean? Because when we talk about austerity, we have this idea that it's about pub- reducing public public services. But how can we make austerity in the sense of we reduce the accumulation of wealth? Or um, maybe. The concentration of private wealth mm-hmm. back to public wealth. But I, I, and I suppose this thing, right? Um, from from Piketty's proposal, for instance, he sees it as a redistributive mechanism. Um, with one of his key aims would be that you'd use it to fund a universal capital endowment that people would get at twenty five. So it's a bit like universal basic income, but it's a one off grant. Um, that I think his threshold is something like a third of the average. Um, the average wealth would be delivered given to people at 25 and his argument is that would also encourage investment and do all, all kinds of other things it's part of a broader proposal i can't go it's a thousand page book of which i've not read all of the pages mm-hmm. um but i highly recommend people go and read it um but that's one proposal right so that's universal capital endowment 
we have talked about this kind of design, like what might be a good a, a good wealth tax. Like the, if we designed an annual wealth tax or even a, a one-off wealth tax, it would be a good wealth tax. Is that sufficient? Is that enough for, for the, the, the issues of wealth inequality and the, the harms of wealth inequality, the global imbalances, the power imbalances that we've been talking about? Is, is a wealth tax alone enough? When you talk about that, I think it's important to say that one of the big issues with an annual wealth tax that would be 1% mm -hmm. is that it, it's just a drop in the notion of wealth. <laughs> one person uh and so it also doesn't change the structure that much and i think if we want to talk about changing this kind of structure and uh preventing the concentration of wealth in private hands we need to think differently and we need to take the problem at the source so it's not a question of redistribution because we cannot rest the system on the fact that some people are going to be ultra rich and then we're going to tax them to finance uh what we need to finance to have like good public services So we need to, to think about how we change the primary distribution. And when I say austerity for the rich, that's what I imply is how do we make sure that we have increased salaries and decrease in uh, possibility for rent income, for patents, for credit. So like we, we decrease the possibility to earn money from owning things and we increase the possibility to earn money from working. Hmm. But it's kind of like... Right now, the pie is already so unequal. We kind of need something to reset everything. Yes, re re redistribute on some level so we can then reform. Exactly, and also use that revenue to invest back into society. And by doing so, you would allow for wealth in society to grow in a different way. And without so much reliance on... Uh, paid employment to live a fulfilled life as well. And that's why I say like when we talk about a one-off wealth tax, that's the occasion we have today. We have a situation in which it's totally justified to have this one-off wealth tax to do this redistribution, but it must come with a structural measure that will prevent uh, the repetition of this accumulation. And going off of what you're saying about like repeating the same kind of practices where uh, of like corporate favoritism and We see with the taxes that we have now, at least, okay, I'm speaking from the U.S. perspective, um, we have these taxes, like we have gift taxes, inheritance taxes, corporate taxes, property taxes, which are all taxes on your assets, so in some form, a wealth tax. But the thing is, these wealth taxes, the rules that are um, embedded in these wealth taxes are still favoring corporate interests. But for example, like you, you have to look at the rules of, for example, the exemptions in a gift tax. They are exemptions for political gifts, for example. What the hell is that about? There's so many other kinds of exemptions. They're also, you know, in, if we want to talk about corporate taxes, there are so many deductions that you can file for that um, a lot of corporations don't even pay taxes and actually some pay negative taxes, like Nike, for example. How does negative tax work? They get money back. Okay. And also, these corporate taxes can be lowered with government subsidies or, of course, tax loopholes, which, you know, corporations have, you know, whole teams of lawyers who can, like, figure this stuff out. My, my whole point here is that the taxes, the rules of the taxes, the design of the taxes um, over the wealth tax, it can't be a repetition of a long history of putting corporate interests before the interest of the rest of society. So, yes, oh, we need a wealth tax, maybe a one-off wealth tax, and then maybe more annual wealth taxes to address the, like, the, the, the pie. And then we need these structural changes in society where, like you said, Sebastian, really, really nicely, addressing the primary source of wealth inequality. Yeah. Virginia? Mm, no, it is not sufficient uh, alone mm -hmm. uh, for many reasons, but some of them are already the loopholes that I mentioned before, uh, so that, that some people will be penalized more than others uh, for the, uh, by the wealth tax and uh, some people would avoid it more easily. 
So we need, of course, structural uh, changes in the way we think economics. But even without going so far uh, into that, even only in the tax sector, we should uh, make uh, radical changes because wealth uh, inequalities occur because before that, there were strong income uh, inequalities or reasons for which people um, that are the bottom 50% of wealth usually pay a higher share of taxes than people at the top 1%. So there is already a lot to do in order to make all sources of inc income equally uh, accountable for. So for example, uh, strong reforms on the way capital gains are taxed uh, when they are realized, but even before they are realized. Mm. Yeah, And when you say that people uh, pay a, a bigger share, it means that in a percentage of their total income is higher uh, than the percentage of tax that rich people pay. Yes. Income, yeah, yeah. 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 It's because uh, normally um, people uh, at the bottom, fifty uh, percent, uh, have their income comes come from uh, uh, labor uh, or pension, and this uh, kind of income is usually taxed more easily than capital gains and the kind of income that usually the wealthiest have. About that, it reminds me a little bit like two things. One. Uh, Uh, after the big crisis in uh, 29, uh, one of the measures that was envisioned by Roosevelt was to tax 100% of the revenue over a certain amount. So like sometimes we talk about the basic income, it, here it would be like a maximal top income. Yeah. And over that, yeah. it's taxed 100%. Uh, so that, that could be a solution. It was not voted at that time, but it was already envisioned by someone like Roosevelt. And, and then when you talk about uh, how do we tax capital gain, but I think it's also how do we prevent them from happening? How do we transition from a society that is based on a wealth that comes from lucrative property to a society that is like about used property? So what I, what I mean by that is talking about economic democracy again, is how do we make sure that, for instance, we say that we're going to buy back the companies from the capital. So like you could, uh, you could say that uh, the original investment, not the value of the company today, but the original investment should be reimbursed because it would be politically difficult to actually expropriate the capital owner. But you can say that we're going to pay back the original uh, investment on the salaries of the people and then the companies will be owned by the workers. That's what we talk in the episode uh, about uh, collective ownership, for instance. So that, that, those are measures that we can think when we talk about democracy and economics together, then we can start to put stuff into place and think about that. So instead of, if you own, uh, if you own wealth, you passively gain wealth, yeah. that everyone has uh, contributes and that everyone benefits. Yeah, and it's still, it's still private ownership in the sense that it belongs to private people, what they use, where, where they work, but it's not lucrative ownership, so you don't make money from what you own. Yeah, and I, I think it's very easy to see our current scenario as like this is inevitable or this is just how things are. But it just reminded me, talking about this just reminded me of something I heard uh, a while back. And when I was talking about when these these wealth, these wealth original wealth taxes and, and taxes in general were first coming in, that one of the major things before the French Revolution was that the, the wealthiest people in society, the landowners, were exempt from tax. It was only the, the serfs and peasants. So it's interesting to see that historical parallel, but also think, okay, these things change, um, and, and hopefully we don't have to have a French Revolution with guillotines to do that. I'm not looking forward to that. Um, I'm ready. <laughs> I, am, I am 100% not on board with uh, violent revolution and banning people. I want to put that on the record. Um, <laughs> but okay, so... so, so These difficulties, the challenge. What are the kind of most utopian visions? How, well, like your ideal scenario for for a wealth tax? I think, uh, like uh, Elise, you you interviewed um, Haliki and talked about degrowth, and mm -hmm. I think that's in, also in the sense of a wealth tax is how do we degrow our economy? And when we we talk about degrowth, it's not about everyone getting poor, but also about like the top richest people getting poorer. Mm -hmm. or like decreasing the wealth that uh, is in those financial areas so that we can all live better lives. And I think that's for me, when you talk about the wealth, like it's also how do we think about our economy in a way that serves 
the many and not the few. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, one of the arguments against um, a wealth tax that we've mentioned already is that it will uh, disencourage investment and therefore um, decrease GDP and yeah, not be good for economic growth. And it's like, well, why is economic growth the goal, actually? Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this in the degrowth episode, in the GDP episode, but that's not a good argument against a wealth tax. Mm-hmm. It's a very vague argument, well, it, too. It's like, what does that even mean? It's held as this kind of sacrosanct belief that yeah. that, that growth and investment, growth is good because through growth we'll have the resources and that will improve people's lives mm-hmm. effectively but what we're talking about here is like well these things this this kind of economic growth isn't improving people's lives if we tax and invest in a different way through the state in in public goods it will directly improve people's lives so you're short circuiting that logic that you have to have growth and investment and have to put up with these things because eventually they'll reach this point um, and just doing the things that are beneficial for people effectively but but it's held by certain people almost with a religious reverence this idea that you need growth you need you need this kind of investment otherwise everything is bad mm. and so when you talk about utopia for me and I, and I said it many times already but it's like extending democracy to other areas of life so that yes. democracy doesn't mean only voting every few years to elect a government but it also means deciding collectively of the investment mm-hmm. I, I think also democracy beneficial for us and also beneficial for the planet i want to emphasize this again uh we i I guess it relates to that idea of donut economics you know we've got to live we've got to meet the the minimum standard of living for everyone i think we and i think we should raise the minimum standard of living for everyone but also live within the ecological limits of our planet um many of which we're we're overstepping right now often due to either the sources of the wealth that's being produced or the lifestyles of the ultra wealthy um, and which we even, especially us in rich countries, it's hard for us to escape. Yeah, about that, I have uh, another example here. Is that uh, when you talk about uh, ecology and things like that, if you take them, like the richest fifty-three people in the world, their wealth could power Africa with renewable energy by two thousand and thirty. So that's also what, what we're talking about. Yeah, fifty-three people's wealth. All Africa Again, powered by renewable yeah, energy. With, with <laughs> renewable stuff, it's not. It's not. We don't need technology. We just need the political will and the investment. I'm not sure I would add much more to what's been said already because I'm. I, yeah, I agree 100. Um, percent I think I would just bring in the gender element um, because I also have a statistic um, that I wrote down. And um, I don't know, maybe some of you have heard it before, but the 22 richest men have more wealth than all the women in Africa. You wrote it down too, Adam? Yeah, from the Oxfam report. Yeah, yeah. exactly. (laughs) And men own 50% more of the world's wealth than women. And that's despite the fact that unpaid care work done by women is estimated at $10.8 trillion a year, which is... Um, three times, just to put it in perspective, three times the size of the tech industry. This was also the Oxfam report. I highly recommend that report to mm-hmm. anyone who's interested. It's, it's very comprehensive um, and, and very illuminating. Also, just one more thing I want to mention on the gender front, because um, we talked about austerity and women typically tend to be the ones that are most affected by budget cuts and the privatization of services um, because um, these services are typically um, um, ones that women uh, primarily rely on. So like the global pandemic, for example, we know that the COVID crisis has hit women particularly hard. because of the price that COVID um, has placed on to family uh, family life, but also um, the sectors that have been hardest hit are primarily occupied by women. Gender is always an issue, and we always have to look at the gender element too. There's always a gender element when we talk about economic inequality. And so I think in my utopia, back to the question, um, in my utopia, um, less wealth inequality would mean more gender equality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my utopia, mm, I have never really thought so much uh, about it, but um, 
I think that for me it will be important that uh, now the decisions on what we want to invest in and what we want to be the focus in, in the technological development or mm, many other fields, uh, will be taken by uh, the government and then ultimately by the people and not only by uh, who managed to um, run a big company. For me, it would mean that uh, we will not have companies growing and becoming uh, exaggeratedly uh, rich and financing other projects without that without the um, without pe people uh, wanting it uh, and without um, without that there there has been a public decision on whether this is good for society uh, for the human society but also for the environment and the world we live in and I think here it's also important to emphasize that when we talk about a democratic economy or more tax, it's, it's really not about the government or the state deciding everything and having control on everything. Because you can also take examples for Denmark. Uh, if you look at the way the production of healthcare is designed, it's not that the state is running directly every doctor's house or every hospital. It's just allocating funds and then re like making guidelines to recognize what needs a doctor house to be. And then the people in the doctor house organize their work around inside of these guidelines. So it, it, it still has autonomy for the workers to decide how they want to organize. Like the hospitals are, I think, run by the commune. or, yes, or, or the uh, region, oh, yeah. I think. Um, but like, it, so it, like people say, oh, then the state is going to run everything. But that's not the case. It's just allocating fund and investing to produce healthcare, to produce education in a way that people can have control over their work. Yeah, so it's not about putting all power in the hands of the state and having state-centralized communism, because that's terrible and works terribly, but leveling things out and giving everyone uh, equal say and possibility. Um, my utopia, everyone gets everything in tubes, or maybe from plants, we just grow everything, like medicine on trees. Um, but, but, but just, that's just my utopia. Lost, like, like we have like little, you plant like seeds, and you can give them instructions, and they grow trees that like have all the medical stuff we need and you can grow a house and stuff. That's my utopia. Grow a house. Adam writes science fiction. Science yeah, I write fiction. science fiction. <laughs> oh. um, um, but, but, but failing that, democratic control, I think it, obviously it needs to be part of a broader thing. All of these topics and these ideas and these policies we've been discussing in the last few episodes, and I'm sure we'll discuss in the future, I think it's about putting them all together and and. and and find the ways they fit together and also like being honest that the 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 world is complicated things are flawed doing what we can with with what we have sorry i just wanted to mention one more thing to my utopia because i mentioned gender but i also want to mention race especially because i'm from the u.s african americans in the u.s were stolen and um and placed into slavery and that wasn't even so long ago and so you know Black people in America, in the U.S., have, of course, are trapped in a cycle of poverty because they were they didn't have any wealth in the first place, and so wealth inequality for African Americans in the U.S. is so poisonous and so um, entrenched, and I think a wealth tax in the United States needs to benefit Black people in the U.S. because, I mean. Wealth inequality has just fed into the cycle of poverty and, you know, like we're never going to become the country we need to be without adjusting for that extreme wealth inequality that was from the very start. But, uh, but I think also like when you look at Denmark today, like very much today we live in a, in a moment in which uh, refugees are going to be sent back to a country in war. Mm. And it's, it's, it's again one more time like poor people, people that are not the richest in Denmark, that are paying uh, for an economic crisis. Because like people are like, oh, we cannot care for, the, for these people, we don't have enough money. And so the question is like, actually, it be, should not be like poor people or refugees that are fleeing war that should pay. <laughs> like there, there is enough money and we need to take it from the rich so that we organize society in a way that everyone can be taken care of. And I, I think it's important to emphasize that what we're talking about here, like we don't have the exact solution. We don't really know uh, how it should be like, but we need to have this discussion as a society. 
about how we're going to organize it so that everyone can be taken care of and that it is a democratic process. Yeah, and if, this, if, if we go, well, our, con- our current structures can't take care of people and that's just the way it is, then we need different structures. Um, but but the fear of uh, <laughs> the fear of drifting too much, I think maybe we, I yeah. think we're gonna bring it to a close there. Yeah. Um, thank you everyone for for the hard work and research and also this discussion. I've learned a lot. I highly recommend people check out the the sources that we're gonna put in the put in the description. I'll put Piketty and he will have the Oxfam report, but there's also a a, a variety of different sources yeah. in there. Obviously, we're here from Menfogli Sanvega Aarhus. We have 100 volunteers working together to run a not-for-profit cafe and campaign and educate people in areas ranging from feminism and climate justice to anti-discrimination and economic inequality to queer issues and refugee rights. Uh, Menfogli Sanvega more broadly is a Danish NGO that works for a more just and sustainable world, collaborating with global partners worldwide as part of the ActionAid Alliance. Uh, if you want to, if you're in Aarhus, you can come down to Café Melenfolk every day but Sunday. It's open again now after the restrictions have eased up. There's amazing food, there's drinks, hopefully we'll be having events soon. It's a lovely café with lovely people. You can also get involved with events, activities, campaigns, even running the café as a volunteer. You can also contribute to Melenfolkli Sandviga by donating or supporting their campaigns. Check out Instagram and Facebook to find out more about our cafe and campaigns. You can look up Cafe Melenfolk or Melenfolkli Sandviga Aarhus and follow the links in the episode notes and check out YouTube or Podbean or whatever service you use to find more episodes of this and more stuff we'll be producing. Thank you for listening, everyone, and goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.